But this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting in the first verse. Do some of you know the name Rick Steves? Some of you see a few nods out there, Rick Steves. He uh, does videos about travel and you know, if things go the right direction with COVID and, and travel opens up more than, it's, than it has been, if you go take a trip to some place far away, if you haven't, you ought to look up and see if Rick Steves has gone there and what he recommends about it. But one day a few years ago, I was thinking about Israel and thinking about Jerusalem. I don't know if it was because of what I was studying, but just thought about it. And I thought, I wonder if Rick Steves has an episode on Israel and Jerusalem. Of course he does. So looked it up on YouTube, watched a few minutes of it. And I happened to catch this, this portion where he's walking. He he's usually grabs a local, you know, like a local resident, a local guide, and they show him things off the beaten path. So he's walking through first the, the old part of the city, the old quarter, then goes into the Jewish quarter and the new part of the city. This guide is telling him about different things. At one point, they're in an area that's heavily Orthodox Jewish. You can tell from the way people are dressed. And they come, they're in a market, so you've got these different vendors. And they come to one vendor's booth, and it's just this wall of framed photos. And they're all men, and they all look similar, but just a little bit different. So they're all men, usually with glasses, beards, dressed in black or black and white. And so Rick Steves comes to this booth and he says to the guy, now, now who, who are these? And the guy says, oh, those are rabbis. And Rick Steves said, the way, the way these photos are being sold and they're framed, it's like they're pop stars. And this guy said, the, the guy said, uh, oh, more than pop stars, spiritual stars. And he even goes on to point out that these subtle differences in the clothing of this Orthodox Jewish area basically is attached to their particular rabbi. Even the hat or the clothes that they wear, though very similar, identify them with a particular rabbi and a particular gathering and community. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to say that rabbis in the 21st century are exactly like rabbis in the 1st century. There would be discontinuity. But I, I just I thought that was interesting because for us, a spiritual leader might just be one person in this kind of overall portfolio of people who help me in life. So maybe I have a therapist and a personal trainer to work out and a pastor and a mentor, and just a whole host of people, and they all make their contributions. That is not what a rabbi was. And in some traditions, it's not what a rabbi is the rabbi was the person who not so much helped you form your worldview he told you your worldview and you were his disciple and when you had a gathering of disciples of peoples around a rabbi I mean he really is the center around which they orbit now the reason I'm bringing all this up is because we're about to read a passage from the gospel of John in which a rabbi after years with his disciples, is telling them that he's about to leave. And he's already mentioned this before, but they can't understand what he's saying. And for context, this is in what's called the upper room discourse. This is from the Gospel of John in the chapter before Jesus has had the Passover with his disciples. He's transformed it into what we know as the Lord's Supper. 
He's washed their feet. And in a few hours, he's going to be arrested and taken into custody. The next morning, he's going to be crucified. And so he's really pouring out his heart to his disciples. This is just it's such dense teaching. And I'm just going to tell you before I read this passage, I will not get to every detail. It's so dense. It's so deeply theological. But I want you to think about they don't know, even if you don't have a lot of biblical literacy, they don't know some of what you know. They don't know about the crucifixion and they don't know about the resurrection. They just know that their rabbi is leaving. So here's what happens. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, even though the word unbelief may not be on our minds or on our tongues, may be a word we've never used. Father, many of us are walking in here with that. And it's expressing itself in, uh, in the form of cynicism or sarcasm or coldness towards you, coldness toward what we just heard, deep frustration. Lord, however we come, in whatever state we come, we pray that you would help us now and open our ears to hear you. 
and to know you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I, for those who've been around, they've heard this before, but if, uh, if you and I haven't met, our, our family moved here to Greenville 16 and a half years ago from Nashville. And I was in Nashville as a campus minister. I worked as a, as a campus minister at Vanderbilt and had actually worked there right after college with the same ministry. When I worked there after college, the man who was the, the head chaplain at, at Vanderbilt really worked for, I, I worked for my constituency. I was identified with the school, but he worked for Vanderbilt. It was interesting. He, when I heard him talk or engage things, it was hard to find him. It was hard to find his viewpoint, find him theologically. But one time I heard him describe his actual p- religious position, you might say. He described himself as a post Holocaust agnostic. A post Holocaust agnostic. And you can probably figure out what he means by that. He meant, and he would go on to say, after what happened in the Holocaust, after the world saw what we saw, what can we really know about God? Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, but after that, we just, we just cannot really know. Now, I've, I've, I'd never heard anybody say it that way. I have heard people acknowledge that the Holocaust was a game changer for them religiously. That's not new. I'd never heard it put that way. And I don't know how you would describe your position, but it may be that for a lot of folks in this room, there, there's something that was the game changer for you about how you see and perceive God. And usually it's, it's related somehow to tragedy or great pain, or loss. So something came into your life. Maybe before that, you, you know, I'm pro-God, and I maybe like the Bible, and I like talking to God, and feel good about it. But after that, it was like, I, I, having seen that, I don't know what I think about God anymore. And really, it, it raises a question, especially as the world is more connected. And I bet compared to Greenville 20 years ago, the folks I'm looking at have so many more friends from different spiritual backgrounds, traditions, whether well-known or not. Of course, when people do demographics, there's the rise of the nuns, you know, the people that have no religious affiliation. They're our friends and our family, and it could be you. According to Jesus, where do you look to actually see what God is like? Now, like I said, there's so much in this passage that I just read. I I can't cover really, but just a little bit of it. There's so much there, so much theology. But I want to look at two things in this passage. The first is there's an audacious request. And then there's an audacious claim. And I want to look at those together. There's an audacious request and then an audacious claim. So let's start off with the request. Like I said, Jesus... He's been saying this sort of in seed form, but he's making it very clear to his disciples, I'm leaving. In fact, he's even describing that I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you because I want you to be with me and you know the way there. And you know, Thomas, now this is so-called doubting Thomas. You don't hear from him much in the Gospels, but he speaks here. He says, well, uh, no, we... We don't know the destination. How would we know the way? And that's where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. We'll come back to that. 
But then he says, you know, you do know the Father. When Jesus says the Father, he means God the Father. God. He says, you know the Father. And then he says this. And you've seen him. And you can almost see the disciples look at each other and go, do you remember seeing God? Because I don't remember seeing God. And I know that if I saw God, I would remember that. So let's pick up with what Philip says in verse 8. This is the audacious request. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And whatever you mean by leaving and going, whatever, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Now, here's where I want to dip back into some Old Testament background. And it may not be familiar territory for you, but this would be familiar territory for those disciples. Because arguably the most familiar part of their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, would be the first few books, the books of Moses. And if you read in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, this is the account of God bringing his people, delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. Not on their own power, but by the power of God. So he does it. This is the greatest act of salvation and delivery in the whole Old Testament. And so they come out, they're rescued. God overcomes the Egyptian army, the superpower, and uh, provides for them. And so you think, oh, wow, all these miracles, all this deliverance, I bet this was the high water mark of their obedience. And almost immediately, the Israelites fall into deep disobedience. And in saying that, I'm not being anti-Semitic because in doing that, they're being human. They're being so disobedient that Moses' brother Aaron crafts idols and shows them to the Israelites and says, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, and the people begin to worship them and kind of have a festival around them. And at that point, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and sees them. And it's crushing. And it's jarring. And it's angering. And he, you can tell Moses, I mean, he's a human being. He's at the end of his rope. And he, this is in Exodus chapter 33. And he says to God, please show me your glory. Now understand what he's saying. I'm at the end of my rope. I thought this was going to have a happy ending. This is awful. We're being terrible. I don't know what to do next. Just show me your glory. And here's what God says in Exodus 33. I will let you see my back. I'll pass by you and I'll let you see my back. But you cannot see my face and live. And it's hard for us as human beings, as mortal human beings, with our problems that we get used to and our disobedience that we get used to, it's hard to imagine that God is so glorious that as I am now, if I looked at him face to face, it would be my death. And God says, if you see me as I am, face to face, it will be your death. Now, Philip would have known that account. And here's what he doesn't know, but we know. Okay, so we, ju- we jumped into John chapter 14 this morning. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, there's sort of a, a prologue, an intro. And at the end of that prologue, John writes this. John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. 
And what he's saying is God manifests himself in different ways. Burning bush, fire on Mount Sinai. But face to face, God as he really is to a person as they really are, no one has ever seen God. And yet, Jesus says, oh, well, you know my father and you've seen him. And Philip says, well, show him to us. If he knows that account that God said, you can't do that, why would he ask for that? I don't know if you saw this in the front of the bulletin, but there's a quote by Bertrand Russell. And he's not as well known as he used to be, but Bertrand Russell was sort of a go-to intellectual in the 20th century. He's a Brit, philosopher, writer. Maybe one of his most famous works is entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Very much identified with different uh, humanist groups and secular groups. When I, in other words, when I tell you that Bertrand Russell was not Mr. Sunday School, he wasn't Mr. Sunday School. And when I tell you he wasn't a Bible-believing Christian, he wasn't a Bible-believing Christian. And one day he was writing a lover, and in a moment of real candor, he wrote this. The center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain. A curious, wild pain. A searching for something beyond what the world contains. Something transfigured and infinite. And he uses an old Christian term for seeing God. Like, what if you did see God face to face? That's called the beatific vision. He says, here's what I want. The beatific vision, God. I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found. But the love of it is my life. It is the actual spring of life within me. Now, I realize you could read that and, you know, you could think, well, he might have been into his third glass of wine and he's riding a lover and he got rhetorically overcharged and he just kind of waxed eloquent. Well, yeah. But I really have to say thank you, Bertrand Russell, for your candor. Because what came out there in that moment, for whatever reason, is just the deep longing and hunger of human beings. And maybe you wouldn't express it exactly that way, but here's how one person did say it. Uh, late 300s, early 400s, St. Augustine or Augustine, however you pronounce it, in his confessions that's still in print, he starts off this way, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What's he saying there? Until I know you, see you, have you, experience you, I'm restless. And everything about human history validates that. That God made human beings. I don't care how you identify sexually, how you identify as a gender, or that you're not non-binary, socioeconomic background, whatever. As a human being, the way he made us is that there is this chasm in us. And you can drive truckloads of accomplishment and resume building and sex and money and stuff and people pleasing and vacations and whatever in there. And it just disappears into this chasm. It won't plug it a grain of sand. Because the chasm can only be filled by someone who is eternal and infinite. So, so that's the dilemma. 
We can't see God face to face and we are dying to see God face to face and know Him and be known by Him. So for whatever reason, Philip in that moment says, do that. You're our rabbi. Show us the Father. Now that's the audacious request. What's the audacious claim? And it's not hard to find. It's in verse 9. Jesus said to him, and this really does sound like somebody speaking to somebody with whom they have history. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now understand what he just said. He didn't just say, well, if you will look at me the right way, and if you will follow my teachings closely, then you will see God the Father. He says, already past tense, if you have seen me, you already have seen the Father. And this is very important that we all understand this. No devout Jew would say that. A devout Jewish rabbi might say, if you follow my teaching, you can come to know God and you will know how to obey his law. But no devout Jew and no devout Jewish rabbi would say, if you have seen me, you have already seen God. You've already seen the Father. Uh, Believe me when I say that's an audacious claim. And here's the thing. This is not the first time Jesus has said this in the Gospel of John. And you don't have to turn there, but I'll just, I just want you to get a fuller picture of this. A couple of chapters before this, Jesus is in a back and forth with a, with a crowd. And he finally reaches a point where he says, it says, he cried out. He says this in a loud voice. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And then get this. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus is adamant on this point. If you're looking at me in a very real way, you're looking at God. And that's, that's really, well, it's a lot of things. It's unnerving because here's what that means. You can be looking at God and not know it. Philip was being shown the Father, and he didn't know it and was still asking for it. Where was he looking to know who God was? It doesn't say. Where do you look to see what God is really like? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is forming how I answer the question, who or what is God? What forms it? Are you grabbing from here and there? Is it kind of a cafeteria? Like there's some stuff I like from the Bible, but there's some stuff I like from Buddhism. There's some stuff I like from this guy online here and there, kind of cafeteria plan. What forms how you think about God? And here's the interesting thing. It probably is a pastiche. It probably is a combo of things. But you know where we often look to see what God is like? Our worst pain points. So I thought I knew God, and then that, that diagnosis came in. And then I saw who he really is. Or I thought I saw God, I thought I knew God, and then chronic pain comes into my life. And it's so much worse than everybody around me knows. And now I see what God is really like. 
Or God took her from me. Or God let me get terminated. Now we see what he's really like. It's really, really, really easy to look at your worst pain and say, okay, well, I guess now we know. Now we see what, what he's really like. And what is Jesus saying? That won't work. If you want to see the Father, you need to look right at me. Uh, a, few, a few months ago, Dana and I were in Chattanooga. And I found out something in a conversation with a, with a local there. And I, I've been to Chattanooga several times, but I didn't know this was in Chattanooga. There's a building there called the Liberty Tower. And in the lobby of the Liberty Tower is one of the only small, true statues of liberty in the world. So when the Statue of Liberty was being designed in France in the 1870s, I believe, there was first a small cast on which the big one that we know is based. And France stipulated, I believe, that there are only 12 cast of this to be done in the whole world. So maybe number three or four is in Chattanooga. Now, the Statue of Liberty in New York is 150 feet tall-ish. And it sits on a base that's 150 feet tall-ish. So it's like a football field stood on end. It's huge if you've ever seen it. So you can see it, but it's hard to see the details. And it certainly doesn't feel accessible, even though it's amazing. But you can go in the lobby of this building in downtown Chattanooga. Did I say Chattanooga originally or say Chicago? Halfway through the 11 o'clock service, I'm not sure what I'm saying anymore. I hope it's not heretical. And please stop me if it is. Okay, good. Chattanooga is where this building is. But it's right there in the lobby. And so you can walk in. Now, 11 feet is big. That's bigger than a person. But you can just see, just see. And not just, well, this is a pretty good replica. This is the cast of the Statue of Liberty. What she looks like. What she is like. Right, listen to this. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. In the first few verses, the writer says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And then he says this. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the exact casting of God's nature. That he is truly, really, eternally God even as he's truly, really now human. You know God when you know Jesus. You see God as he really is when you see Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Because here's the thing. When you see Jesus, he will stretch you. And he will stretch what you think about God. For instance... There's a lot of talk right now about inclusion. And that can be a great thing, that we want to be inclusive. It's very much a Western thing right now. It's not shared by all cultures around the world. certainly had not been a big cultural priority in global history. But we're talking a lot about being inclusive. All right, so is God inclusive? All right, well, let's back the question up. Is Jesus inclusive? Well, here's the thing. John loves to catch Jesus saying, whoever. There are so many whoever's in the Gospel of John. They're just peppered all over the place. They're in our passage. Maybe the most famous verse in the Bible in the world is from John. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In this passage, where do you see it? Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do. Whoever. Jesus loves to say whoever. Irregardless of background, ethnicity, whoever. Do you need living water? Are you spiritually thirsty? Whoever comes to me, I'll give you that water. Whoever, whoever. All right, now we hear that and go, okay, that's what I'm talking about. Inclusion. Wide offer. No distinctions. I love that. And then you read verse 6. What does verse 6 say? This is on the heels of Thomas saying, Well, we don't know the way. How can we know the way to where you're going? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one had ever said that. That was sane. In other words, and I'm not saying this to be combative, but if you and I were to talk to Jesus and say, well, you know, the way I see it is all the religions of the world are really like different roads uh, going up this one mountain. And they have different routes and they, they look different. Some are on opposite sides of the mountain. They can't even see each other. But they really all go in the same direction. They all end up at the top. They, they find God. We're really after the same thing. Jesus would say, no. No. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God. No one comes to the Father but through me. Utter exclusiveness. So then you're left going, okay, so wait, is he inclusive or is he exclusive? And of course the answer is yes. And that's jarring to us. How about this one? This is not from the passage. Is God severe or is God gentle? Just look at Jesus. He might go into the temple in a place where Gentiles are supposed to have a place to pray, but people have set up business tables, and he'll come up to those tables, and he'll throw them over, stuff scatters everywhere, and he doesn't stop to go, hey, listen, I'll help you clean this up in a second. I'm just kind of trying to make a point. I'll circle back and just give me 10 minutes. Throw the tables over, no apology, make a cord, of, whip of cords, drive animals and everybody out of there, no apology. And he will see someone marginalized, the poor, the deformed, the women, and move toward them and be so gentle. He'll see a woman who's a widow, who's lost her son. So now she has no male firewall in her life, in her culture. And he'll say, don't cry. And raise the boy from the dead. Is God severe and stern or is he gentle and kind and merciful? Yes. So this this raises some questions. First off, if you are here and you do believe in Jesus, you do believe, as Jeff was saying, the gospel, the good news. You do believe in him. Are you really looking at him? 
Are you looking at him on a regular basis? I will tell you from experience that I've been a Christian now for almost 40 years. And I've had, I've had seasons of life where I just, I want to know him. I want to look at him. I want to spend time with him. And I have seasons where I want to coast. And I kind of live off old capital. Kind of live off stuff I learned way back, saw, thought about. I just want to exhort you, right now, your heart, right now, wants to know God as He really is. And right now, according to Jesus, you can't know Him and see Him as He really is unless you are looking at Jesus. How do we do that? Through His Word. And crying out, open my eyes to see you, Jesus, as you actually are. If there are misconceptions getting in the way, break through them and let me see you as you actually are. But what if you're here and you do not have faith? What if you're here and you do not believe in Jesus? But maybe he's nudging on you. First off, I would say, again, I'm just so glad you're here. But here, here, here's the mystery of, of mysteries. The only way that we can be connected to God is through Christ. According to Jesus. I know that's so exclusive. It is. The only way we can be connected to Jesus is through this thing called faith. Here's the mystery. You and I cannot manufacture the faith that God requires. And the mystery is that God can give it to people. Not through some mystic experience. You may not even feel the moment that it comes. But the person who's left saying, I want to know you. You're saying believe. It's all through the passage. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe in me. Believe. If you're left saying, I can't. A, that's good. B, cry out to God. Man, when you believe... You don't just become like an adherent to a set of teaching and a tradition. You become connected to Jesus Christ. The Bible says you're, you're in Him. Let me, uh, let me end with this. And some of you have heard me share this before, but I couldn't, I couldn't not share it. That's a double negative and awful, sorry. I couldn't not share it. Uh, a few years ago, I did a six-week free trial of Ancestry.com. And so I gorged on genealogy for a solid month. And I, did a, I found a few things about my own family, but I went further back with Dana's family. And uh, so Dana's maiden name is Freeman, and I did a deep dive on, on her, her people. And I actually went back to her, I'm going to try to get this right, her great, 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 great grandparents, the Freemans. Even her dad did not know about these folks. And I found out that they are buried in this old cemetery in Noonan, Georgia, just south of Atlanta on 85. And I thought, well, I go through there sometimes. I'm going to go find their grave one of these days. Well, lo and behold, I had to take a trip and I was spending the night in Noonan, Georgia. And I thought, I'm going to go find those graves. So I find the old cemetery. I put, uh, there's kind of a main central road through it. I pull in and look around at how many graves are there and think, I'm never going to, I mean, this needle in a haystack, I'm never going to find these graves. And I'm not embellishing I pull into the middle and look over to my right, and there's a section that says, Freeman. And I thought, that could be important for me. Parked the car. God, I walked right up to them. They were not 
vertical headstones. They were slabs on the ground. And so there's her great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother. And there was an epitaph on her, on her grandmother. And I couldn't read it because it was late in the day. The light, I could, it, was, it, it had been eroded some. So I got up early and came back the next morning. And the sun was hitting it where the shadows let me read it clearly. And it was a quote from almost the end of John. And now, you know, I, know, I mentioned Thomas shows up in our passage, Doubting Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas because he's the one that wasn't around when the first group of people saw Jesus after the resurrection. He said, well, I, you know, unless I see him and I touch him and put my finger where the nails were, I'm, I'm not going to believe it. And then Jesus shows up and says, all right, go ahead. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then the next thing Jesus says, I want to read this so I don't get it wrong. The next thing he says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? And then here's the epitaph. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Trust me, it's not lost on me that I'm standing up here talking to a group of people, some of whom I know and some of whom I don't, and I'm saying, entrust the entirety of your life to someone you've never seen. That is the very thing that Jesus is calling you to. To look at him and his word, to look at him through this good news that's coming to you, to cry out to him for help, and to watch the risen Christ burst into your life. When you believe Him, He gives you eternal life and shows you who God is. Let's pray that that would happen. Let's pray now. Oh Lord, these are mysterious things that we would be called to believe in someone that physically we have not seen, we haven't touched. But Lord, we want to know you. Father, we want to know you as you are. Your son has said, if we see him, we see you. So we pray together this morning, Lord Jesus, show us yourself. Show us yourself through your word. Show us yourself by your spirit working in our lives, in our feelings, and our thoughts. If someone here desires belief, needs belief, but can't manufacture it, would you grant them that faith and trust in you? And do great things in our midst that we might know you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.